0: Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm. Welcome to today's teleconference for employers. Our title is Investigations of U.S. Employers by USCIS, ICE, Department of Labor, Department of State, and other federal agencies. In my panel today, I have two of our brilliant attorneys at the Murthy Law Firm Adam Rosen, who's a member of the firm. And has been with us many many years and works in this area and brian green whose focus is audit and compliance work and who many of you may have already spoken with over the last several years so let's get started because it's an extensive topic that's very very scary on some levels but very useful for us to understand so brian can you tell us what are the current trends that are going on with the u.s department of labor that an employer should be concerned about
1: sure sheila the Department of Labor in the last year or two have been focusing more on forcing debarments on HMB employers. And that's a scary penalty for HMB employers because a debarment means that you are taken out of the USCIS and Department of Labor's immigration programs. So if a company is debarred, they cannot get new LCAs, they cannot have HMBs approved for even existing employees or new employees, they also cannot have PERM applications approved or I 140 petitions approved. So if a company is debarred by Department of Labor, It will significantly affect their foreign workforce and maybe even threaten the company's ability to go forward as a business. So it's a very, very strong penalty. We're seeing a lot more of that in the last two years.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Now, I understand there's been some recent case called the Le decision and what does it deal with, and why should an employer be aware of the provisions?
1: This was a very striking case, very unsettling case for a lot of people in the field because a judge from San Francisco who works for the Department of Labor said that a company who had sponsored someone for an H-1B petition, but not actually employed them as an H-1B worker was liable to pay three full years of back wages to this worker so even though this person went and worked for a competitor for a few months and then left the country and went back to their home country the department of labor said because there was no bona fide termination the h1b employer had to pay more than a hundred and fifty six thousand dollars for someone who was never an h1b worker on their payroll so it's very 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 striking and very scary because you may have workers who never worked for you, and Department of Labor may now consider you to owe them back wages.
0: Okay. And from my understanding, the three main elements are the notice of termination to the worker, which needs to be in writing, and then notification to USCIS also in writing, which I know we always recommend that employers keep notice proof of that. You have to. Exactly. And the third is offering the return cost of transportation home, limit the time of the offer to return back and prove that that was offered or that was rejected or refused and follow up if no reply and state that the offer for travel expenses has now lapsed. And,
2: and this is something that an employer should be mindful of to offer to an individual who, um, who, who is leaving as, as the third element of this test, even if the person is staying in the United States. The Department of Labor's judges in the cases that exist are looking at each of the three elements, even the third one, of offering return home transportation for somebody who you might know is going to another company.
1: So even if the person going to stay here, you still have to make that offer, and you should do it in writing, whether it's certified mail, email, and you should keep proof that the offer was made. And if you can have the person respond, even by email saying, no thanks, I don't want the, I don't want the transportation cost, you're covered at that point, and you need to keep that in the file for that worker. So if the Department of Labor comes knocking, you have that proof, and they cannot get those back wages from you. But in Lee Monsanto, the offer was never made, and the judge said all three years of the LCA had to be paid.
0: Well, I don't know where the case is, but if it was my company, I would appeal that decision for sure because it seems so out of the ordinary and so unfair to an employer. Okay, the next question for you again, Brian, is... I know that there's all kinds of issues regarding payment of actual wages, the higher because an employer in an H-1B context is required to pay the higher of the actual wage or the prevailing wage. And how does, for example, a bonus system come into play because there's all kinds of comp, you know, different computations and formula involved.
1: You really hit on it, Sheila. There are different ways in the industry that H-1B employers are compensating their workers. And what we often hear is people talking about fee splits. Most H-1B employers often start with an H-1B worker on a salaried LCA saying, I'm gonna pay X amount of money per year. But once the person comes on, they may say, "Well, I want to work more than 40 hours a week. How am I going to be compensated? I want some performance-based um, compensation for my work." And in the industry, some people are offering a fee split and paying a percentage of what is earned by that worker. That may work under Department of Labor regulations, but you have to make sure that a The prevailing wage for that year as listed, the offered wage listed on the LCA, is paid in full. But if you want to pay more than that base actual wage or required wage, you have to find a way to show Department of Labor that you're not increasing the required wage. And what we recommend is that companies consider a bonus structure where the pay is separated on the pay stub. One line item is the gross pay. And another line item is a bonus payment, and the company tracks the bonus payments, and then the Department of Labor can see, yes, you paid $65,000 on a W-2 as regular wages, but beyond that, you say paid $20,000 in bonuses, they might say, great, you're really compensating your workers very well. If you don't do that, if you co-mingle and have an $85,000 pay stub throughout the whole year, The the Department of Labor will come in and often say, you have to pay these people, all your workers in the same job category, $85,000 a year. And instead of having a bonus system that helps your company retain talent, instead you've inflated your... Bottom line, you actually inflated the amount of money you have to pay your workers, which you have not planned for in advance. So the how, the way you do your bonus structure or the way you pay your workers needs to be reviewed and looked at very closely because Department of Labor will go for the highest amount of money possible to set the wage for the workers and is in their discretion to see how that formula is going to be um, calculated.
0: Okay. And yes, it seems really, really tricky and and difficult, but you know what? It's a brilliant suggestion and a brilliant idea. Uh, One of the huge benefits of participating in the Murthy teleconference series, because Not only do we go over an overview of what's required, but we throw free suggestions and ideas like this of how to take care of yourself. But of course, you will get even more guidance and help and stuff uh, when we're actually processing the case, depending on what we find while we're reviewing the documents and where we feel that there may be room for you as a company to save uh, time, money, and protect yourself. And often I've said a good attorney, a good accountant will always save you money in the long run. You pay a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars, several thousands of dollars, hopefully you're going to save several thousands, if not several tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in protecting yourself and your business from any investment. It's like education, you're investing in the future. Uh, A good lawyer can invest and guide you. So now I'm going to have both Brian and Adam uh, maybe talk a little bit, Uh, but really we want to go over the fraud detection and national security FDNS, which you're familiar with, which is part of USCIS, and what exactly they have been doing and how they work, when they were set up, and what they've been doing. And I'm sure many of you as businesses have been knocked, have received a knock on the door from, FD, from an FDNS agent. So can I have, Adam, you go over it briefly, and then maybe Brian can pitch in as well?
2: Sure. So the Fraud Detection and National Security Unit of USCIS was established back in 2008 in an effort to stamp out what was seen as a very large problem of fraud. And at the time, we understand that USCIS didn't really have any particular office within the entire agency that was dedicated to this particular problem. And so the post-9-11 solution was to create this Fraud Detection and National Security Unit that would Essentially, follow up on petitions that were approved. Sometimes look into petitions that were pending. But for the most part, the kinds of situations where they will come and investigate will be where the petition has been approved. Now, they will um, the the one of the major areas that they interface with. H-1B employers is look at, and they look at an H-1B position that's been approved, and particularly this is an issue that we see with the I- companies in the IT industry where a company has gotten an H-1B petition approved, and subsequently what they will do is file a labor condition application that the Department of Labor certifies. Now historically, and this is going back quite a number of years, that was sufficient. Um, there is a letter floating um, around that from a U.S. from an old INS USCIS official that indicates that uh, an H-1B amendment isn't necessary if the terms and conditions have not materially changed and there's a new LCA that's compliant with the Department of Labor's rules. the The problem that has developed in recent years, probably in the last two years or so, is that. The FDNS officials are coming down to companies' offices, and what they are saying when they're told that, well, a new LCA has been done is that, well, you never notified us. We, USCIS, approved the H1B petition, but you did a new LCA for a new location, but you never told us about the new location. And sometimes this is something that comes from FDNS, and in some instances, this is also coming as a result of the Department of State. And the Kentucky Consular Center, which is where petitions returned from the consulate get returned through, they have their own own fraud protection unit. And some of you may have, unfortunately, received a notice of intent to revoke, and attached with it might even be a, a memorandum from the KCC fraud protection unit discussing the investigation that was done. And so, what we've come to learn that is a an advisable practice is when there is a change involving a new LCA that it may be in a company's best interest to also do an amended H-1B petition. And so this is in large part uh, triggered by the investigations by FDNS, the concerns of FDNS that have been expressed by their agents, who in some instances might simply be, companies that are contract with FDNS to do the site visits. So the last point that I'll say before handing this over to my colleague Brian is that one of the most important things to be conscious of when an official from or claiming to be from the U.S. government is knocking on your door and asking to speak to someone is to see their identification, see their badge, see their business card, uh, get as much information about that person because if a notice of intent to revoke or something else is issued later in time, you want to be able to have as much detail as possible about the person or persons who visited your, your company at that point in the past.
0: And that way you have somebody you can write the address the letter to, you can mention that if there's any problem if there's a violation of laws, if the person went about you have information. Basically, you're protecting yourself with the information and knowledge by taking the person's name and ID number, badge number, you know, whatever their specific number that's assigned to them. And I know um, we've also always said take detailed notes uh, of everything that's said uh, to and by the FDNS, review their documents, uh, make sure that you keep a record of every document that you've handed over to them. And be as truthful, and of course, at the end, I know Brian always says this: be truthful, mm-hmm. because end of the day, um, you know, you don't want to be making up facts or information which you may forget yourself later on. Inconsistency is the worst kiss of uh, disaster, and you want to supervise the FDNs, not leave them alone in your file room to spend the day and do what they wish with your files. Have somebody sitting there making sure that they're not going off on a tangent or doing something improper. And make sure that uh, you are monitoring the entire process and system. And remember that any information that they make, they would actually be in a position to then refer it to a different federal agency, as both Adam and Brian have mentioned, whether it's to the Immigration and Customs Enforcement for an I-9 audit, which Adam's going to discuss in a minute, or even to further investigation in civil and criminal penalties, etc.
1: If I could just add here, the summary, I think, of what Adam and Sheila have just said is that you need to have an action plan. You need to, in advance of having an FDNS visit already have one or two pages of procedure set up where one person from your company is designated to speak to the FDNS officer, that you have a system where the person is placed in a room where there are no files available to them, and that if there is a lawyer that you work with on these cases, that you contact that lawyer, but you need to have a list of items that must be done, including, like you're saying, Xeroxing the credentials, getting a copy of the business card, finding out, is this person a contractor? Or are they really an FDNS officer? You need these details, and then as Sheila said, you need to have someone monitor and take notes of everything that is said, everything said by the FDNS officer, everything that is said by their company representative, because you really need to have a record of what's said, like a transcript, because USCIS will not give you those details afterwards. If the worker that they're coming to see, or if you have any workers that are off-site, if you have not updated, done an amended HMB petition, you need to have a list of where those workers are. Because if they come, if comes to your headquarters looking for that worker, it's much worse for them to walk away saying, that worker's not there they may not follow up and go looking for that worker. If you can say, no, we did an updated LCA, they're working at company X, and this is the address, and you can call them right now, that officer, that contractor may go and check and see what job that person is doing at the second location, and that's gonna look a lot better for your company, and you can talk to your attorney in the meantime.
0: And the good th- exactly, and the good thing is Department of Labor can only look at the LCA, but if FDNS is there, then they can look at the H-1B petition amendment, which is the difference between the
1: job duties, the work classification? Every all those details are open for FDNS. And FDNS, as Sheila said, will refer to other offices. So it could be ICE getting called if they find out someone's not being paid correctly. Things can be referred to tax authorities. So the FDNS and DO are both very serious, and you need to document you need to be prepared ahead of time. And as Sheila said earlier, the best preparation is to have your company's books, your audits done ahead of time, so you know, hey, we got four people that don't have H-1B petitions that are current, the work locations are different, there's a risk here.
0: Okay, thank you, Brian. Uh, Adam, coming back to you, I know there's a lot about the ICE or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, which we're all familiar with, and the whole issue of I-9s, which really every time I look at it, it looks like such an easy, silly, dinky little form, and I'm always like, I can't believe the number of lawsuits and cases and agencies and You know, the amount of millions and billions of dollars that we've invested in setting up all kinds of systems with the government, all of our valuable tax dollars getting used up uh, for employer employment, eligibility, compliance and verification to ensure that employers are in compliance with the law. And I know that the entire handbook was recently updated as recently as just a few months ago in June, on June first, two 2011, with a revision date. But what are the main highlights in this new handbook, and what should an employer be looking at?
2: Well, it is important to make sure that whenever you, you're, when you're filling out an I-9 form that you're using the current version of the form. Uh, one of the common issues that, that does come up is when an employer is rehiring a former employee. Now, if that situation is happening within three years of the original hire date, the employer can complete a new I-9 or rely on a previously completed I-9 and simply update the re-verification section uh, in Section 3 of the form. But it is important in that instance for reverification verification that that I-9 form still be valid. And so this is okay if the employee that we're talking about had an interruption in the employment, but the employment was a continuing basis based on a reasonable expectation of employment. And there are certain situations that the handbook gives examples of, like if somebody's taking a leave from the company for school, if there's extended sickness, a pregnancy, or if there is seasonal employment and the person is coming back for the next season. Now, so the question that we get asked is, well, what if the employee has been or is being rehired multiple times over the course of several years? And so what I can tell you is that if the completed, you look at the completed I-9 form, if the completed I-9 form shows that the person is still eligible to work, then no new I-9 is required, but you have to update Section 3 with the rehire date. If, however, um, the, um, if, however the form is not valid, then you're going to need to complete a new I-9 form. Now, another situation is if permission to work that's was filled out on the I-9 form previously has expired, in that situation it's necessary to re-verify the employment authorization in Section 3, or again, prepare a new I-9 if Section 3 was already used up because there was an expiration or there was some other situation that required
0: the... So when you say re-verification, Adam, you mean something like if the H-1 is expiring, they would have to re-verify and say, okay, now that old H-1 expired, show me the new right. either the receipt notice or well, the actual approval. Right,
2: and the I-9 handbook does address the use of receipts. They have a table. It's uh, I forget exactly where, but it's early on in the handbook. It's a, They have a, a series of situations when you can use a receipt. Uh, it does also, one thing that's interesting to note, and this, I believe, has changed from previous handbooks, which is another reason why it's always important to look at the new handbook, go through it, take the time and read it, is the situation regarding H-1B portability. Now, under the AC21 law, if there is a timely filed petition for somebody who is maintaining H-1B status, that person can start working for the new company, before the new H-1B petition is approved. And so what the handbook says for completing the I-9 here is that with the timely filed petition for a change of employment, the employer can accept the prior employer's I-94 card with the foreign passport and write in the I-9 form section two, the terms AC-21 and the date the I-129 was submitted to USCIS. And what's notable about the handbook here is that It does not specify receipt. It does simply indicate to write AC-21 and the date of submission of the I-129. And so this seems to indicate that USCIS might accept, excuse me, ICE might accept on the I-9 form even proof of a courier. Whether that will actually happen on the ground when agents are looking at I-9 forms I think is an open question. But um, that remains a possibility based on the specific language of this i9 handbook
0: very good okay and i know there's a whole issue about e-verify and employers you know obviously we're all aware of the stem opt extensions for the additional 17 months if the employers e-verify qualified and i know that there's expansion the federal government's thinking about about it many states are requiring mandatory e-verify what does e-verify mean and how should it be used uh, in this context, Adam?
2: Well, there is a memorandum of understanding that a company, an employer, has to sign. That's between the Employer Social Security Administration and the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, all employees that are hired by the company after it enrolls in eVerify have to be processed through eVerify. It is prohibited, though, to process existing employees. So, an employer and an employer who verifies new hires through eVerify is presumed to have not knowingly hired. An unauthorized alien, meaning someone who is not permitted to work in the United States. However, participating in E-Verify does not provide any kind of safe harbor. So, if there is anything that gives an employer a reason to suspect that um, an employer, an employee, is not authorized, then an employer will have to will have to take some remedial steps. And in that situation, it's important to consult with an attorney to make sure that the employer is not engaged in any kind of discrimination on the basis of national origin or based on their documents that the individual is providing. And with that, I'm going to transition into talking about an office probably many employers have not heard of, but is there available both as an enforcement tool and as a resource tool. It's called the Office of Special Counsel for Immigration-Related Unfair Employment Practices. And it is a unit in the Department of Justice. Their job is to um, enforce the law against unfair documentary practices related to verifying the employment eligibility of employees. And essentially, in short, what that means is their job is to make sure that employers are sticking with the rules of the I-9 and the list of documents that are required to be handed over, allowing individuals to choose which documents to present to complete Section 2 of the I-9 and are not directing people which documents to present. And if they're... When an employer will designate or direct an employee to pick specific documents, that's when you run into a situation of what is called document discrimination. And the Office of Special Counsel does have a website that has many resources, and so it is useful to explore, to look at. They have a phone number and email address that's also available to be contacted with questions about um, potential situations, questions that an employer might have, and is probably a good resource to use when there are questions an employer might have Again, though, it is a good idea to consult with an attorney so that you have the confidentiality of that attorney-client relationship, which you're not going to have when you're consulting with an office of the Department of Justice.
0: It's very scary because most people think, oh, well, if you can't show me my documents, then I just don't hire you and I'm safe because I've done, you know, I haven't hired somebody who's not authorized to work. But remember, as an employer, if you do that because somebody looks foreign, sounds foreign, has a thick foreign accent, the person could very well be a U.S. citizen, a green card holder, or a siley with an EAD, and that would actually be an illegal violation of the law. And that scares a lot of employers because they think, well, I'm not sure, but this person must be foreign because they don't have the papers and'm but I won't ask the same question to somebody who looks American or sounds American, and that is completely illegal and not allowed. We also have a lot of common issues that that we've uh, you know that apply in these kinds of situations um
2: so the, the, and these are things that um are available from the Office of Special Counsel. Um, They get all kinds of questions from various companies, from attorneys sometimes. Um, For example, they were recently posed a question where the employer asked about an appropriate way to pose a question to potential employees about their ability to work in the United States. And what they were directed is essentially that whether They were able to ask whether a person is currently authorized to work in the United States because this question does not discriminate on the question of national origin discrimination, which is one of the things that are prohibited by the immigration law. Um, what Other issues that come up commonly are do you copy documents or do you not copy documents? Um, On the one hand, if you copy documents and there are problems with your I-9 based on the documents, that's more clearly evident, Um, and so that might be a strike against an employer who does keep the documents. At the same time, though, if the documents are kept, it should be across the board, consistent with an established policy, And if there is at some point in time an an audit that is done of a company's I-9 compliance, it does provide the auditor with the opportunity to provide better suggestions on how to correct the I-9s since the documents are there with the I-9 form. Now, if an employer has a policy on how to handle I-9s, it should be consistent, it should be in writing, and it should be complied with on a regular basis. Unfortunately, there are many companies, for whatever reason, do not consistently comply with the terms of their policy. And when there are investigations, whether it is by Department of Labor, whether it's by ICE or other government agencies, failure to comply with the policy can itself be a problem and the source of additional penalties against an employer. Now, the end of the process that an employer goes through in completing the I-9s and uh, maintaining their I-9s Uh, It it doesn't really end with just filling it out and putting it away because, as Sheila mentioned, the I-9 is a relatively simple-looking form. The problem, though, is each each box that is not completed properly constitutes a single violation. And so for that reason, it's important to have an outside perspective, have somebody come in who can go through your I-9 forms and look at them and review them to see where there are mistakes. Because as many attorneys who practice in this, in this field will, will tell anybody who will listen that most employers do have I-9s that have problems. And part of the reason is because the form is deceptively simple. It's a one-page form, but there's a lot going on behind that form. And so it's extremely important that periodically, on some kind of regular basis, that an employer does an audit of their I-9s.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the the points that I know we've often, when we've had discussions, we talk about it at the firm um, amongst ourselves and for the benefit of employers, is that the I-9 form itself does not require the social security number or SSN of the form of any employee unless the employer uses E-Verify. Um, and as we know... Uh, the Social Security Administration requires an application for a Social Security to be made only within seven days of starting employment for taxable wages. Many companies tell, have told me during consultations, no, we haven't allowed the person to start working as our H-1B employee, even though the H-1 petition is approved, because the person doesn't have an SSN or SSA has not issued it. Guess what? That is not allowed. The Department of Labor will require you to pay wages for the time that the person doesn't have an SSN. You are required to actually put the person on payroll and you can file for the SSN within seven days of the person starting employment. Also, any request for you as an employer to review this Social Security card issued by the Social Security Administration that that, that you're requesting the card should be made is distinct from the I nine process to avoid any document discriminatory charges, uh, we also do a lot of work with successors and mergers. In, you know, when there's a merger and a successor and in interest, a company shutting down in an economy. All of those are very important, and important in that. That's something that we can do in terms of an audit work.
2: And and that does come up occasionally, and it is important to look at because particularly in the current environment where compliance with, with I-9s and similarly um, compliance with the, public, with the public access file and LCA requirements by Department of Labor are enforced um, that much more stringently and strongly um, by both those agencies and others, uh, it's important to be mindful of um, the the liability that comes attached with taking them on. And there are different rules, there are different forms, different agencies, so uh, it may be possible to, uh, to take on the liability of public access files and do new I 9s. Um, there may be decisions or choices that a, a new company will have to make about previous uh, employ- employees, and, but the, and that's something that should be discussed with an attorney uh, experience in those issues because a new company wants to engage in the new business and become a profitable enterprise that can continue and not want to be bogged down by the liabilities created by a preceding business.
0: And, you know, I mean, we obviously we are always mindful of the time. I realize, you know, we try to make these in, in the middle of the afternoon on the first Wednesday of each month for about 30, 40, 30 to 45 minutes to make it valuable, effective, choose topics based on feedback and requests that we get from you all as employers on what you want to hear and updates and information. But some of the issues that we're constantly hearing and seeing concern us. I mean, because when the government looks at an employer and looks at, you know, how much to uh, penalty or fine to slap. They consider factors like the size of the business, the good faith of the employer, is the employer uh, committing fraud, is the employer backdating documents, is, you know, the seriousness of the violations, whether the workers were unauthorized before and if the employer has been previously uh, found guilty of hiring unauthorized workers or failing to pay wages. So the history of previous violations is always taken into account, for you all as employers. The government also will try to actually reduce the penalties because they don't want to shut down businesses. They realize the importance of the business in this economy in particular, but at all times they tend to be mindful about that. Uh, We've recently had cases where the, the, the agent told the company, do not go and backdate the documents, but the employer decided that to make their put their documents in order, they would backdate it, and it was so obvious because the information was on every photocopy of every document that was made in every employee's file, which really, I think, would have annoyed the investigator even more. So, I mean, these are issues that we can tell you based on our experience here at the Murti Law from cases that we have seen and cases we have read about and heard about, situations where you as an employer want to focus And trying to say, but Miss Murthy, I was not aware of the law. I had no clue that this is the law. Why, you know, you all, we all know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. The government does not forgive us or excuse us. The government expects you to go hire a really good law firm, and we are here to certainly guide you and protect you and take care of you should you need our help and guidance. Um, So, you know, as we've said before. Immigration is a complex issue. When you get into areas dealing with employment law and immigration law, it becomes even more complex because you're now transgressing other areas and not so a real. An employment lawyer may be uncomfortable with immigration issues. An immigration lawyer may be uncomfortable getting into employment law arena. But we have a team that was specifically created when we saw how many companies were getting audited and investigated that we created a few years ago specifically with particular emphasis to help each company. And we can help you if you're audited by the Department of Labor, by ICE, by FDNS, or any other federal agency. We can protect you and take care of you if you have a successor, a merger, or a shutdown. We can look at back wages. We can give you ideas and try to protect you and see how we can look at your documents. We've had our lawyers go to court around the country working with local counsel to protect you, to save you tons of money. And as I said before, hopefully our fees are paltry, uh, very small compared to the amount of savings in terms of savings in fines and penalties and protecting you and your business for the long term. We're always here to take care of you. We want you to be careful, uh, and we appreciate your taking the time to join us today. Thank you very much. And for all of us here at the Murthy Law Firm, we appreciate your uh, being a part of our team and have a wonderful day.